Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Eliza Reed, author of the new book, Secrets of the Sprachar, which highlights the stories of women in her adopted home of Iceland and offers the rest of the world some ideas on how to better tackle gender inequality too. Sprachar is an ancient Icelandic word meaning extraordinary or outstanding women. And that's the inspiration behind today's discussion. Our host for the episode is Rosamond Irwin, media editor for the Sunday Times. Here's Rosamond with more. Creating more equality requires challenging the status quo. It's an evolving conversation in most countries, and that's good. But what's better than good is actually doing something about it. Iceland has gained international attention for its efforts to address gender inequality. In 2018, it introduced a pioneering policy that requires companies and organisations with more than 25 workers to prove that they are paying men and women equally for jobs of equal value. Many countries have similar sounding measures in place, but in Iceland, the onus is now on the company and on its leadership, not the singular employee raising their voice. According to the World Economic Forum, Iceland has the smallest overall gender pay gap and has held that position since 2009, albeit there is still a gap. It's also a world leader for including women in the labour force. Our guest today is Eliza Reed, a woman well-placed to discuss these issues. An entrepreneur, writer and co-founder of the Iceland Writers Retreat, she's also married to Icelandic President Gudni Johannesson, making her the country's de facto first lady. Eliza wrote an acclaimed opinion article in the New York Times in 2019 discussing the peculiarities of the role, and she now returns with a new book telling the stories of both Iceland's women and the country's efforts to elevate them. Secrets of the Sprechar. She joins me now to talk about it. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Eliza. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Before we begin, listeners may pick up on the fact that yours is not an entirely conventional Icelandic accent. So please, would you tell us a little bit about your background, which is outlined in the book, and how you arrived in Iceland? Yes, of course. You're absolutely right. This is not a stereotypical Icelandic accent. Uh, English is my first language. I grew up just outside of Ottawa, the capital of Canada, uh, in the countryside, studied at the University of Toronto, and then moved to England at the end of the last century to get a master's degree in history at Oxford University. And that is where I met an Icelandic man who uh, became president of Iceland in 2016. There was a whole lot that happened in between that meeting and him becoming president, but I'll just jump forward to that part. Just to explain to listeners who may not know that much about um, the Icelandic um, political system, uh, you say in the book, obviously, that the role of president is largely symbolic. 
What does that mean if you're married to the president? That is an excellent question. So you're absolutely right. It's symbolic, meaning that the president does not belong to a political party or have a political platform. It's the prime minister and parliament who, who deal with all the political issues day to day. As the spouse of the head of state, I have a very undefined role, if you can even say a role at all. I like to say that because I find it an honor and a privilege to serve in this capacity. But there is no handbook for how to be the spouse of a head of state. And so I like to look at that as an opportunity to be able to use this somewhat unexpected platform to speak out about issues that I think are important and also to sort of confound expectations about what people might be expecting, for lack of a better word, the female spouse of a male head of state to act like or look like or 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 behave. And so I, I try to be active in that sense. And tell us a little bit more about you. So you're a mother of four. How do you juggle everything that you do? Which is a question always people ask women, but I always try to ask it of men too, I should add. <laughs> That's excellent. And and because I also have a stepdaughter, he's a father of five, so he has to even answer it better than I have to answer it. Um, the the trite answer is coffee, of which I consume <laughs> copious quantities. And I suppose the the other answer is, well, an ability to be organized, but an ability to drop a lot of balls. No one can do anything or everything, I should say. And we really have to prioritize in life, whether we want to be very busy in our work lives or in our home lives or in our personal lives or, or whatever capacity. And we have to recognize that we can't achieve it all. And therefore, uh, we have to be to be willing to let go of certain things and just decide what we want to let go of. And, you know, I emphasize, of course, that that my husband and I are, are married and in, in this partnership and raising these children together. And so it's not just my job to be raising the four young children. It's also his job. And we work on that together. People always talk about Iceland being one of the happiest nations on Earth. What are they getting right I think we get a lot. I think it has to do a lot with that work-life balance. I think it has to do with a society where we are creating the support systems to enable uh, people to live the lives that they want to lead. For example, when it comes to equality, uh, affordable childcare and excellent parental leave schemes, uh, excellent healthcare as well, of course. Again, working to reduce the equality gap between the, the haves and the have-nots, if you will. And I think when we look at this as well from gender equality point of view, I think it's a society where we have really passed the tipping point between debating whether or not trying to achieve gender equality is a priority, but debating how we are going to try to achieve it. And we know that societies companies, businesses, and, and, and countries as a whole that are more gender equal are, are happier. They are longer living. Men and women are longer living. They are more successful. Companies put more on the bottom line. And, and I think as a society, broadly speaking here, we have realized that. And so we are working to strengthen that and to narrow the, the gender gap that exists right now, because we know that that's going to be better for everybody in the country. And you obviously the title of the book mentions this word sprakar. Could you explain what it means exactly for our audience? Yes, sprakar is a very old and obscure Icelandic word. It's even a word that native Icelandic speakers don't know necessarily. And it means outstanding women. And I love the fact that we have a word in Icelandic that is used exclusively to describe women 
and in a positive way. Because I can't think of very many words in English that are used to exclusively describe women in a positive way. I can't, in fact, think of any words. So I think this is something I'm trying to bring into the English language a bit. Oh, that's so interesting because that linguistic framing there. So, you know, I can think of lots of words that are predominantly and almost exclusively used about women that are critical. So things like diva or witch or the word that rhymes with witch, which I won't use. Um, exactly. But how interesting that we don't have many words to sort of celebrate women. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think it's a, I, I, you know, I think it says something about the state of gender equality here as well and, and. So that, that's the reason I called the book The Secrets of the Sprucker is that it's comprised of a lot of discussions with women throughout the country in all walks of life. And hopefully their stories are revealing some insight into why gender equality can benefit all of us. And so with the business perspective on this, what is the benefit to business, do you think, of gender equality? Well, the benefit to business is to the bottom line. I mean, it, you know, and, and I don't need to go through all the statistics and you can look them up with the World Economic Forum and McKinsey and company and all this, but companies that are more diverse and not just in terms of gender, but in all forms of diversity are more successful companies and, and the employees are happier and the employees stay longer. And there are just many ways in which we need to be constantly vigilant and aware of this, because I think as human beings, our default, when we're building teams, when we're building organizations, our default is to look to people who are like us, in whether that's a similar background or education or ethnicity or gender. And really what we need to be doing is looking outside of those boxes, is increasing the diversity of the companies. And sometimes, uh, as we've shown in Iceland, we need... Um, outside structures in place to encourage that if we're if it's not moving fast enough on its own like we have for example gender quotas in Iceland that we have more organizations that are working to increase networking opportunities for women and I think a huge area that's very important as well is investment opportunities for women certainly in Iceland you know we're seeing that only 11 percent of the largest funds in Iceland are are controlled by only 11% women. And the large majority of investment funds go to companies that are run by men, or maybe a few more that have one woman involved in them. So, you know, kind of he controls the the, the pocketbook is also controlling a little bit where the money is going. So we need to, to be focused on that as well. But it's going to improve the bottom line for everybody. And in terms of companies in Iceland, what are they getting right? There's a lot in your book about parental leave for example. Well, that's one of the things exactly that maybe isn't companies doing, but is the benefit to companies because it is enabling uh, a broader workforce to be taking part. And Icelandic women have the largest participation in the workforce of the OECD countries. And exactly as you say, part of that reason is because of the subsidized childcare and the parental leave scheme. The parental leave policy is paid by the state. It's not paid by the employers. And it's what's called a use it or lose it scheme, which means that one parent is allocated a certain number of months. The second parent is allocated a a certain number of months. And then there's a third chunk that can be split either way. But what that means is that we're not seeing only, say, mothers taking parental leave. And we're not seeing employers having, you know, small companies, for example, having to foot the bill of paying for a replacement employee and for the person uh, who, who is on their parental leave. And then once they go into childcare, that's heavily subsidized as well. So there's a lot more encouragement for women to return to the workforce and to be working there. And that in turn has built a sort of work culture where the work-life balance is much more flexible. So if you are working in an office and you say, look, I, I, 
I'm going to have to leave the office for an hour because my son is doing a ballet recital or it's my daughter's parent-teacher interview. Nobody is going to not let you do that. You're not going to have to book a half day's holiday to go and, and do your parental job. So I, I, and you know, obviously Iceland's size is an advantage in that sense as well. You're not going to be spending an hour and a half in traffic to get back to the school to go and see the ballet recital, but it, it's, it, it certainly shows that, that there is an understanding of the importance of the work-life balance and that the domestic side shouldn't be the exclusive responsibility of the mother, for example. You do say in the book though, that women are still sort of the household CEO, even in Iceland. And how do we start shifting that? So the examples are things like schools, if a child is sick, we'll call the mother first, or it's the mother who's expected to know in the domestic setting who, uh, you know, which classes their kid, you know, when their kid has their swimming class, for example. So how do we start shifting that so it's balanced between couples? I think this is an excellent question and an excellent point, Rosamond. I think that we're seeing a lot of debate as you said, that people, men maybe would say, well, I, I do the dishes just as often as my wife does the dishes. But someone is coordinating that. Someone is remembering the birthday and, and doing all of those things. And and until we see real changes in that, it, it, it won't happen. And I think part of having more women in the workforce helps with that because there's just, you know, you're both gone all day working. So you both have to come back and coordinate what is what is happening in the home. But it's something that, that works in both directions because sometimes we hear women say, well, I, I have to remind him to do the dishes, but he doesn't do it very well anyway. And, and you know, we need to understand that people do things in, in very different ways, of course, and there isn't necessarily a right way or a wrong way. And sort of women have to also be willing to give up some of the the power, the influence of being those quote unquote household CEOs. But I think that for having, for instance, parental leave, that fathers are taking paternity leave, starts them from a very early age of getting more of a grasp of, of what's involved in being the household CEO and running those things. Because when a father is taking his paternity leave, uh, the mother is generally off at work. And so the father knows when the feeding schedules have to be and has to remember that, you know, the food is ready at this time or that they don't like to eat this kind of food or that they like to have this song sung to them when their nappy is being changed. And, and, and they're, you know, just like all of us as parents, they're getting that experience in a, in a very hands-on way. How do we ensure that women working doesn't just mean that there's a sort of double burden on women? So they work all day and then they come home and work further at home. It strikes me that if you enjoy your job, working is a wonderful thing. And, and I imagine you and I are lucky enough to be in that position. But for those who don't, their life is very, very much a slog if you slog at work and then have to slog at home. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. And it's the, the million dollar question, I suppose, isn't it? Because that is important. And also in Iceland, we see that women still are disproportionately taking up more of the household tasks, even though they're both at work. How do we fix this? It's, again, very, very difficult. But one of the main things is talking about it, is acknowledging and recognizing that it exists and that it is a challenge to achieving gender equality. And again, I hope that here that is something that we are doing more. We see people talking about when when reports are conducted and, and, and studies are done, and we see people speaking up about it more. You know, women here, for instance, are less likely to be accepting of the idea that the household CEO job falls to them exclusively. Um, but it's absolutely an area that we all need to be continuing to, to work on. What do you think your husband learned taking parental leave? That is an excellent question. I think you probably have to ask him what he learned, but I certainly learned 
that I, it's so fortunate for the children to have two parents who are kind of approaching parenthood in different ways. So there's one small story that I tell in the book about when he was taking his parental leave and I was working from home. So actually I witnessed this, that he was about to go out for the day with, with the baby and he had a whole plan for what he was going to do and activities and things he was going to visit. And it was all day and he had nothing with him as he was leaving the house. He had no nappy bag. He had no food or anything. And I remember thinking, I, I tried to resist the urge to say something, but I just couldn't stop myself. And I finally said, aren't, don't you need anything with you? And he said, oh, I'm going to buy a banana for him for lunch on the way. And as if that, you know, the banana was the magic cure for any problem that could arise for him all day. And of course they were fine all day. And it's just two different, you know, parenting approaches. So, you know, but he has such a close relationship with our children now and and you know you you talked about the school calling you know our children when they're when they're sick or they need something they're equally as likely to call him as they are to call me if there's a problem and and i think that's really good you know at nighttime if they wake up with a fever they're equally as likely to call call out for their dad as for their mom you um, obviously have experience in workplaces and and the first in Iceland that is um and the, one of the first ones that you worked in you flagged that they had this sort of section of the office with a DVD player where employees could leave their children um if they were working um i can't imagine a uk workforce i don't know what you think if if um if canada would be the same i cannot imagine a uk workplace doing that do we need to relax a little in terms of people with children bring them to the office occasionally. I, I, I think so. It's, it's a funny example because I spent five years, almost five years working in the UK first before I moved to Iceland. So my closest work experience was in a corporate environment for a FTSE 200 company in the UK. And, you know, my husband never went outside the building where I worked at all, of course. Uh, I think occasionally met some of my colleagues at, at, at uh, Christmas events or something like that. And then when I moved to Iceland, and as you said, if there's a staff day, people just bring their child in and, and, and they hang out with them for the day at work because what else are they going to do? And that was, there was a huge shift there in terms, of, in terms of just acknowledging that sometimes people have families at home. And I also remember the, the chair of the board of the company where I first worked was breastfeeding her baby while she was chairing this, this meeting. And it was a software company with, you know, big majority men. And, you know, just as if it was the most normal thing in the world, which it absolutely is and and should be. But I remember really noticing it and thinking, I do not think that would have happened in the company where I used to work in the UK. Is part of it that we need to challenge sort of how stuffy organisations are around these things and and sort of it's part of acknowledging that people are too, you know, are three-dimensional, not just workers. And do you think the pandemic, given that obviously it forced a lot of people to care for their children and work at the same time, a really difficult situation, do you think the pandemic has maybe shifted that a little bit? I I hope in the long term we'll see shifts for the better, because I think in the short term, we saw an increase, say, in gender-based violence. We, We saw that women really disproportionately had to take on the lion's share of not only seeing their own jobs, but making sure their children were getting all their homework done. And and doing all this work. And, and this World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Index that Iceland has topped last year in the report said that the pandemic has increased by a whole generation the number of years it's estimated to take before we achieve gender equality. So in, in the short term, this has been much worse. But I'm hoping that in the long term, 
we see that it'll indicate a greater flexibility, uh, especially say in countries like the UK where commuting times can be very long. So if we allow more flexibility for people to spend more time at home when they need to uh, and, and still get their jobs done, I think that that is a positive. One of the things I really liked about this book is you're not putting all the onus on women. There's an awful lot of books that write about how we achieve gender equality in the workplace. And it's all telling women to be more confident, you know, to lean in, as it were, um, yes. and all of those things. And obviously, mm-hmm. maybe, I mean, do you think any of that has a place? Or really, is it for society and companies to, to is no. the onus on them to deliver? It's absolutely on them to deliver, like everything else. I, I think, first of all, some senses with women, we're preaching to the choir. I think that... Uh, I think most women want to see further equality. I think most women want to see further equality at home as well. I think most women have stories of, of being patronized to or, or worse in, in the workplace. And as you, as you said, this default that it, it should be all about women talking or that we need to organize a conference on increased gender diversity in the workplace and it's all women who attend. Uh, you know, there's an example in the, in the press in Iceland a few weeks ago, there was a cabinet shuffle and now I'm forgetting the, the dialogue, but there was a newspaper article that criticized uh, one of the cabinet ministers, a woman, for her political party, for the fact that she was the only senior woman in within this political party running certain situations and said, how come she hasn't been complaining about this? And then everyone said, well, what, is it her job to be complaining about the lack of female diversity within her own party? Or is it maybe something that the entire party needs to be looking at? And again, there's still this onus that it's up to women to change things. And, and that's something that I think it does a disservice to men as well. I think, I think there's some kind of an assumption there that all men dislike the idea of achieving gender equality or feel threatened by it. And I don't think that that is the case. I think we quite rightly speak up about situations when, you know, men need to improve on areas, but there are a great many men who do recognize that gender equality benefits people of all genders, that it is not a zero-sum game where women are trying to gain power at the expense of men, and that in the long run, this is going to help everybody. And I think we really need to have men on board with this because, sadly, there is still sometimes the impression that it is a women's issue. And therefore, when men speak up about it, again, everybody almost listens more, which is, which is a shame, but is, is often the way that it is. And so having men vocal in, in this dialogue is, is very important. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. There's a tendency to paint Iceland as a sort of feminist utopia and I mean I, I've read many articles over the years sort of saying that one of the things that really struck me as being very interesting in your book is the sort of downsides the things that where Iceland really isn't excelling um, you mentioned sexual violence as one why do you think that is as a society and what is being done to address it so for the sexual violence, as you mentioned, that is something called the Nordic paradox, where it, throughout all the Nordic countries, we see sort of higher rates of reporting of gender-based violence, which goes against our intuition of what we would think, as you say, of these, these uh, countries that are seen to be as so strong for women. But we don't really know, is that because there are in real terms more cases like this? Or I hope it's because perhaps that there is less stigma surrounding coming forward and talking about these issues, that there is a broader legal definition of what constitutes gender-based violence, uh, or that there's more trust in the police force so people feel like they can come forward with their stories. And I think all of those things factor in, but obviously, as long as we have any gender-based violence, we're not going to be able to achieve gender equality. So we have to remain vigilant to reduce these numbers and to improve the situation. So in Iceland, for example, we're working a lot to remove stigma from the survivors of gender-based violence over to the perpetrators to believe people who have these reporting cases. And then there are practical situations like, for example, the, the University of Reykjavik is developing a sort of virtual reality scenario. So women who are about to go to court to face um, people that they are accusing of, of gender-based violence can actually sort of simulate the courtroom scenario before they have to go and do it. Or places where they can keep all of the information on their case at one sort of uh, location online. So rather than have to go to all kinds of different points to find out where their case is progressing in the system, they can find it that much easier. Um, so there are different sort of measures like this. And there's a really interesting case right now that's going to the European Court of Human Rights, where a number of women in Iceland are actually suing the Icelandic state 
for not looking after their uh, their cases properly enough when it comes to uh, allegations of domestic violence or sexual assault. And so it'll be really interesting to see what happens there, um, that when you're actually suing your, your own government for, uh, for not following the cases properly. And what are the other ways where Iceland isn't excelling? I think in the book you mentioned the number of CEOs who are female. Yes. There, when I wrote the book, there were no female CEOs that were running companies traded on the Icelandic Stock Exchange. There is now one, but there are still more men called Arnie who are running companies. And we see these examples you know, in other countries where there's more men called John, for example. And absolutely, we need just to see more women in the C-suite of companies and, and, and investing in women-led companies, women controlling the pocket bits, controlling the investment, and then also investing in women. And we do have these quotas in Iceland, for instance, on the boards of uh, publicly traded companies, but we aren't seeing quite enough results of that. So, you know, it's only, I think, almost 35% uh, of women on the boards of publicly traded companies because they don't have the penalties if they're not actually living up to it yet. So quotas uh, can speed things up, but also only, only go so far. So I think that corporate Iceland is definitely an area where we need to be improving. And I'm an immigrant to Iceland. I also see that when we're moving towards gender equality, we can't look to be, say, one very privileged group of women. We have to be really working towards achieving equality for everyone. And for example, women of foreign origin in Iceland do face other challenges that locally born women don't face. And if we don't recognize those challenges and work to eliminate them, then we're not going to be achieving this. And that also goes, for instance, to other groups like women with disabilities, non-binary women, where we also see further challenges. And again, we're not going to be able to, to erase this gap if we plow forward with and leave other people behind. In the corporate world, one of the problems that's been flagged is since you know, companies were encouraged to get more women uh, on boards in the UK, what you found is they were putting them in non-executive roles. So they don't sort of have a day-to-day -day role running the company. Has a similar thing happened in Iceland where you get a, a privileged few who may sit on many boards and these people may be brilliant at, at doing that, but it's not actually changing the way companies are, are, are run fundamentally? I think uh, maybe not to that same extent. We still need to see more women on boards. And there are organizations like the Women Association of, of Business Leaders who are really pushing to say, as you said, there are more than a certain small core group of women. Uh, and also women, for instance, who put, the, who put themselves in a database to be consulted as experts for media interviews, for example, because there's always this debate of, well, we would have more women, but women aren't applying for the job. Or we would interview more women, but they don't want to be interviewed. And, and we need to kind of work concurrently in a whole lot of areas. You know, we need to uh, show that there are more women who would apply, but we also need to write job descriptions that are more um, open to, to jobs that would encourage more women to apply or whatever group it is that we are, that we are looking for to increase. Um, but there are always qualified people. You know, in Iceland, two-thirds of the undergraduate students at universities right now are women. So we need to be seeing these, uh, I don't say we need two thirds women in, in the C-suite soon, but you know, to say that there aren't enough qualified women is, is incorrect. 
do we know where it's going wrong? Now, obviously, there's a lag effect and, and, and it will take a long time for those two thirds of women in the university to be uh, of an age where they'd be on boards. But do we know at what point in women's careers it tends to go wrong? Is there a problem in, in the sort of so-called pipeline in getting women uh, from the sort of middle jobs up to the top? I think that's absolutely true. I think, you know, having these systems in place so that when people are in their childbearing years, it's fairly easy for them to go back to work is something that is extremely important. But, you know, again, it's multifaceted, as are so many things. So one of those things is encouraging this, reducing this mental load at home for the women so that people, they, they feel that they can take on more areas of responsibility. And I think it's really remaining vigilant so that we're seeing that the results show that this is important. So if I'm running a company and I know that the more diverse my company is, the more money my company is going to make, I would think it is in my best interest to encourage diversity, whether that means flexible working schedules or writing job descriptions that are to encourage, say, more women to apply if I need more women in the job or, um, you know, having interviews or situations that allow women to to uh, progress and be promoted more within the company. I think it, it, it requires running the business with these gender equality glasses on all the time because it's going to benefit everyone. In terms of uh, when women are starting to have children, there's still a huge amount of pregnancy discrimination in the UK. And, and actually the figures on that are pretty shocking for the UK. Has ISON got any solutions around that? It strikes me that giving men... Um, paternity leave helps to reduce the problem for women. But are there any other elements there um, where Iceland is ahead of us? Well, I think the fact that they, if, if I'm correct with the UK, it's often the employer that is paying the parental leave payments, whereas it's the state in Iceland. And I think that makes a huge difference because... It, of course, there's the there's the knowledge with the individual and the person has to be, you know pay for replacement, but it's financially less of a concern, especially for for SMEs that that um, where one person can can really make a difference. And again, there's just been this societal shift. There's a very high birth rate in Iceland, and people just expect uh, young people if they want to to have families and know that that's a normal thing. And and understand that that means that people are going to take time off. It means they're going to get to know their children and develop a good relationship with their children and then go back to work where they can also, can, you know, contribute to work and, and, and do and do well and, and create success for their own organization. One of the other things that Iceland's way ahead of us on is childcare. The cost of childcare in the UK is exorbitant um, and we don't have a system where it, it's subsidized in nearly the same way as Iceland, as you outline in the book. Um, I wondered, you know, is Iceland offering us a model there that we should copy? And you mentioned the birth rate. And my suspicion is the UK is currently um, having a discussion around declining fertility. Uh, part of that will be to do with um, our housing issues. But is part of that, do you suspect, the cost of childcare as well? Well, I like to think that having a reduced cost of childcare, again, puts more of the burden on families to say, do we want to have more children? Are we able to have more children rather than can we afford to have more children? Um, it's absolutely not my place to say what other countries should or shouldn't be introducing within their own societies. I can only comment on the effect that that has had here in Iceland, both for society as a whole and for me personally. I've often said in interviews that I wouldn't have had four children in just under six years if I had been living in Canada, for example, because I couldn't have afforded it. And bringing up your children, is it a, a mission to 
make them sort of have feminist values? Is that something you've tried to imbue in them? How, how does one bring up feminist children? That is also a good question. And for me, it is very important. I'm very proud to be a feminist. Uh, I think it's a very positive thing to be called a feminist. I don't see it as a, as a hot button word uh, in, in the sense that some people might. And we have uh, three boys and then a girl together. And so my boys are the, are the oldest ones for me. They're just entering their teenage years. And for me, it's vital to raise them as feminists uh, to see that uh, they need to, they come with a lot of privilege and they need to recognize that and, and use that for good and, and treat everyone with respect. I think for me, with, with my boys right now, I think about it a lot in terms of talking about how we see women represented in the media, whether that's me joking with them while we watch the, a movie on television and me thinking, oh, she must be very cold running around in that cold skirt, in that short skirt all the time while these men are doing something else. Or, or she seems to be crying a lot. If I were that man, I would be crying too at that situation. I don't know why he isn't also crying to, you know, we tried it. My husband, for instance, uh, loves going to sporting events when the national team is playing and always goes to the same number of, of women's sporting events as men's sporting events, because it's important to showcase and highlight, uh, the, you know, women in sport as well as men in sport. So that's an area that I emphasize a lot. And another area I emphasize maybe is, is this issue, especially with kids and social media of looking at how we see women represented in social media and teenagers. And, and I'm constantly talking to them saying, why don't you, you know, encourage your friends or girls to, to put posts of themselves doing something, not sort of selfies with them sucking in their cheeks and, and trying to look fancy. So of course they roll their eyes at me because I'm their mom. And so I'm the least interesting person for them, but uh, I, I still do my best. One of the things I found amazing in this book is that you've moved to Iceland without speaking the language. And I just wondered, and obviously you went into a job there. I wonder what your employer did to help you with that, because I'm sure, you know, there are other companies where they, where they have people come in who don't have that sort of connection in, in society beyond the family. Um, what can be done to help people? Um, and, and what did you find worked for you in that regard? I think um, for me, I knew when I was moving to the country that I would be moving at least for the long term. You know, I wasn't moving to see how it would go, which gave me an incentive to start learning the language right away because you can live in Iceland and never learn to speak a word of Icelandic. So I knew that I wanted to start learning it right away. I was fortunate that my union paid for some of the lessons and I had a good job as well. So I could cover other costs and I just made it a priority to start uh, learning Icelandic and trying to speak it as quickly as I could. And many of the larger companies here as well do pay for costs for their, uh, for their employees who are learning the language, but it's a, certainly a challenge here, especially for Immigrants who come to the country who, for instance, are taking public transportation to and from their jobs, and then they have a family to look after. And then even though they might be a member of a union that will reimburse the costs for their studies, it's only after they've completed the course. So they still need to save all this money first to be able to pay for it. So I think that that is a challenge that we need to be working on here in Iceland as well, is to make it easier for people to learn the language, because that's going to help everybody. It's quite a different society in a huge number of ways. I mean, just reading the book, there were a couple of things that, that struck me. I had no idea that Iceland didn't have any trains, even. Um, I just hadn't even thought about it. Um, but there's lots of lovely detail like that. But you talk about the country having small nation complex. What do you mean by that? I, I say that also with fondness because I grew up in Canada, which I think also has small nation complex. So it's a little bit of a, 
and again, I say this fondly, a little bit of a sort of insecurity about uh, a sort of lack of confidence of what we can do. And Iceland, because Iceland is in real terms, a small country, we're 360,000 people. So uh, we're definitely very small, yet we quote unquote punch above our weight. As you said, we're topping all these indices. You know, we are in NATO, we are active members in all kinds of, of multilateral organizations. And Canada, because Canada is next to this massive, massive neighbor, uh, so, so kind of gets subsumed a little bit by it. And so in, in practical terms, that means when an Icelander is on TV somewhere abroad, it's covered in the news here. And in, in Canadian terms, it means that anytime I see a, 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 an actor or actress on television who's Canadian, I can't help but say, he's Canadian. Did you know that? And my kids, it shows they're maybe slightly more Icelandic because they always roll their eyes at me. Yes, we know, mum, that she is Canadian. Thank you for reminding me again. But that's the small nation complex, and I kind of love it. And obviously, the problem that a lot of um, English people have is they will struggle to be able to tell the difference between a Canadian and, Ameri and an American accent. Um, you mentioned that in the book, that people kept asking <laughs> where you're from in the States. Is, is that yes. sort of another manifestation of it? May, I think that's maybe why we do it every single day. I, I think that's not an exaggeration to say that every day that I lived in the UK for five years, people asked me where in the States I was from. And I, I, not that I expect people to really know the nuance between the accents, but it's if, if one is unsure, it's always better to just ask where, where one is from, <laughs> generally speaking. Do your kids um, have much uh, knowledge about Canada too? I mean, how much are they very much? How much are they Canadian Icelandic um, as opposed to Icelandic? They are, well, they're dual citizens, which is important for me. And, and so they, they have Canadian passports as well. Uh, I try to keep them interested in hockey and, and obviously they stay in touch with family members in Canada. So I, I hope they feel in touch with it. And, and I have a Scottish heritage. My grandparents were all Scottish. So they also feel like they are um, Scottish a little bit too. What would you like companies to take from your book? So if, if there's any bosses listening or people who work in HR, what would you like them to think about in terms of mm -hmm. what they can do better for women? I think that's an excellent question. I would think it's to not put that burden on women, but to put that burden on the decision makers within the company. Why? Because it's the right thing to do, because it's going to benefit your bottom line. It's going to make your employees happier. It's going to make your customers happier. There, there's no reason not to do it. And one needs to take a holistic approach to it. And one needs to remain vigilant. It isn't a matter of holding a seminar and ticking a box and saying you're done with it. We have to remain vigilant. And, and that's something that the, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us, that it's not our fault that we couldn't remain vigilant, but people went home, we took a step back. And so we have to continue along this path and it's going to benefit everybody. Uh, Iceland is obviously a country that has been through an enormous um, crisis within living memory. Did the financial crisis in Iceland, so about 2008, I'm guessing, uh, did, how much of an impact did that have? And did it have any beneficial effects in terms of equality? It, there was definitely a lot of soul searching. And a lot of people will tell you that, you know, it was men who were running the banks that all went bankrupt and women who came in and cleaned up for, you know, for example, right afterwards, we had our very first female prime minister um, who, who came into the country. And, you know, one of the investment companies, I think possibly the only one that didn't go bankrupt was run by women. Um, this is probably more anecdotal, but I think 
you know, makes a point. It, it, there's definitely a lot of soul searching after the economic collapse and, um, and, and looking for ways out of the crisis. And, and I think Iceland was generally praised for how it, it got out of the crisis quite quickly. Uh, there was someone over here, a politician over here said that if it had been Lehman's sisters, it wouldn't have gone bust in relation to the, to the US, obviously, there. Um, that probably, to many people, seems like a simplification. Is there anything in that, though, that we should think about in terms of potentially just having diverse voices in the room rather than it being perhaps such a gendered issue? Exactly. I think um, I think exactly like you say, the diversity is important, the different perspectives. If somebody says, well, it's always been done this way, maybe that's an opportunity to try and do things in a different way. Because I think we have to be careful not to roll our eyes or, 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 or make too many statements that, well, if it were women doing it, it would be much, much better. Because I think that leads to a kind of level of us versus them, where maybe then men feel like women are trying to work towards gender equality at their expense, which I cannot emphasize enough is as absolutely not the case. It's something for everybody to work together to achieve. So, you know, maybe if a certain woman were running Lamb and Sisters, it wouldn't have gone bust. We don't know. But I think we, as you said, we can't oversimplify things and we can't say, say that men have no role in trying to achieve this equality. And you talked a lot about how we get men on board. What, what do we need to do to those who seem less keen to help female um, colleagues progress? I think, again, showing sometimes in, in a business context, the bottom line, the fact that it is always more important and, and showing people what it does for them, showing that it is not a zero sum game. It's not a matter of somehow reducing their uh, their contributions or their opinions and also showing that it benefits men in other areas. If we look back to child rearing, for example, I don't think I know of any men who said, Oh, it was such a shame. I had to take my paternity leave. I, I missed all this work. And, and why was I hanging out with my child so much? I don't think anybody uh, regrets the time that they that they spend on their parental leave. And, and so it's a matter of, of showing those benefits as well to, to men. Um, I think that's a really great place to end. But I just wanted to ask one more thing. When you're talking to um, young women about how to get on in the workplace and giving them career advice, what's the advice, the sort of snappy bit of advice that you might give them? Speak up and use your voice and help to elevate other people as well. I think we so often think, I'm the only one who thinks this, and that isn't the case. And we need to help other people get the confidence to speak up and to listen to each other. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to Eliza for a fascinating discussion and thank you all for listening. I'm Rosamund Derwin and this has been Intelligence Squared. Thank you.